Uh, this morning, good morning everyone, and this morning we're going to be dealing with the London Confession, chapter 6, The Fall of Man's Sin and the Punishment of It. It's found in the hymnals in the back on page 673 and 674. 673 and 674. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our study this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and for this day of rest and worship. We pray as we come together to study the rich heritage left to us by our forefathers in the faith, that the Holy Spirit would shine light on it, write it on our hearts, as far as it follows your word, for your honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today, as I said, chapter 6 of the London Confession, which again follows the Westminster Assembly, the Savoy Declaration, and combines them with the first London Confession of Faith. And the biblical doctrine of human sin and its punishment. Now this chapter has five paragraphs. In these five paragraphs, the Confession deals with the fall into sin, what I call representative sin, and then original sin, actual sin, and remaining sin. First of all, the fall into sin, chapter 6, paragraph 1. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death, upon the breach thereof. Yet, he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who, without any compulsion, did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. So you have here, as I understand it, five aspects of the fall into sin. First of all, the setting of the fall, original righteousness. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, etc. Secondly, the occasion of the fall, satanic temptation. Yet he did not long abide in this honor, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent. The manner of the fall, which is voluntary disobedience to God's revealed will who without any compulsion, that is, voluntarily, did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command. The substance of the fall, eating the forbidden fruit, quote, in eating the forbidden fruit, and the ultimate cause of the fall, the mystery of God's decree, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit having purpose to order it 
to his own glory. Now, following the Westminster Confession, our London Confession cites two texts to support the manner of the fall into sin. First of all, Genesis 3.13. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And then 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now with respect to God's control over sin, the Westminster Confession appealed to Romans 11.32, for God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Now God's control over sin can never be fully explained by human logic. We must simply embrace what scripture teaches in faith and with all due humility. We should never exalt human logic over scripture. And the scripture clearly and plainly affirms God's sovereignty over sin and man's responsibility for sin. For example, Genesis 50:20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Acts 2:23, speaking about the crucifixion of Christ, that he was delivered up by the hands of lawless men in accord with the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And again, Romans 9, 18 and 19, and Ephesians 1, 11 sums it up that he works all things after the counsel or plan of action or resolution of his own will. So that's what they say about the fall into sin. They specify its setting, occasion, manner, substance, and the ultimate cause of the fall into sin. Now secondly, in paragraph two, they unfold what I refer to as representative sin. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Now in paragraph 2, the Westminster Confession only mentions the impact of the fall on Adam and Eve. But following the Savoy Declaration, our London Confession adds, and we in them. So in this way, both Savoy and London Confession confess and affirm what I refer to as representative sin. Now representative sin, and that's a name that I made up, refers to what occurred in the Garden of Eden. It, occur, it, it occurred then in Adam and Eve's life history. Our sin happened then, let's say approximately 6,000 years ago, we sinned. When they ate, we ate. Because God established a representative solidarity 
a oneness between Adam and all of his natural posterity, which we are. So that when he ate from the tree, we ate from the tree as really and truly as if we ourselves had each been in that garden and taken from the tree and eaten. Even though we've never seen the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we, we, we can't even get near to it. It was probably, as we saw already, completely destroyed in the flood. There's no access to it now. But we ate from it before we were conceived. We ate from it representatively, which is why I refer to it as representative sin. It didn't happen in our life history. It happened in his life history in the Garden of Eden. And we in him. When he ate, we ate. That's our representative sin. So where does the Bible support that? Supports it in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. A text that we're going to expound, God willing, in greater detail when we expound the book of Romans. Romans 5, 12 to 21 is a passage that they appeal to to support the idea of our representative sin. You go through that passage line by line. There's no other explanation. Sin and death entered the world in one and the same way through the one sin of the one man. Through the one act, the many were made sinners. When he, that's because God established the representative solidarity. Now I remember when I first heard this, I said, this isn't right, this can't be right, this is not fair. But then somebody turned me to Romans 5, 12, and 21, and I just read it and shut my mouth. Who am I to decide what's fair? That's not up to me. That's up to God. God decides what justice is, not me. God's not accountable to me. I'm accountable to him. And if his word says that injustice or in righteousness, he established a representative solidarity between all of us and Adam so that what he did, we did when he did it. Who are we to say that's not right? Who are we to sit in judgment on God? But we do, don't we? And here's the problem with that type of pride. The problem is, if representative solidarity is not fair, not just, then we're all doomed to damnation. Because even as we sinned in Adam, so also those of us who believe obeyed in Christ 2,000 years ago. And God established that very same kind of solidarity between us and Adam and between us and Christ. And by the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners. Even so, by the obedience of the one, will the many be made righteous. So if it's not fair and not just and to be rejected, then we have no hope of salvation and deliverance. And if you reject the principle of representative solidarity, then you have to reject it not only in Adam, but also in Christ. So be careful before you throw it out the door. 
Because when you throw it out the door, you not only throw out representative sin, you also throw out representative righteousness in Christ. And you throw out gospel salvation in Christ. You throw out the righteousness of God, which you're about to hear about this morning in the message from Romans 1.17. You throw that out too. And you don't want to throw that out. As you throw that out, all hope of salvation is lost. So be careful saying God's not fair and what he's doing is not just. And it's not right that we're regarded as responsible for what Adam did. That's totally unjust. Be careful before you go down that road. When you go down that road, you all, if you're going to reject the principle of solidarity, you're going to have to reject it in Christ also. Then what are you going to do? Then you've also thrown out the righteousness of God. So before you throw out representative sin, think twice. Now, we sinned when he sinned in representative union with him. Then, to support the impact of his first sin, they cite, very interesting, the very same support that the Westminster Confession cites to show the impact of sin on Adam and Eve, wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And they appeal to a number of passages, Titus 1 and verse 15, about the conscience. To the pure, all things are pure, but to them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. And Genesis 6, 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. And they close with Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And they use that to support the idea that all have become dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body as the impact of Adam's first sin. That what he did, has an impact on all of his posterity in every generation as long as the earth remains and it includes all of us. Which brings me to the third paragraph which focuses on what I call original sin. Original sin is not something that happened in the Garden of Eden. Original sin refers to our own life history. It's the sinful nature with which we individually enter the world. That's original sin. And they describe that original sin 
in paragraph 3, which they derive from a combination of the Savoy Declaration and the First London Confession. They being the root, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Now, to support the fact and reality of original sin, they appeal again to Romans 5, 12 to 21. And then they outline the impact of original sin, which is, as I said, our inherited sinful nature, which involves a morally polluted heart and a legally guilty record. The guilt of sin was imputed, that's a legally guilty record, and corrupt nature conveyed. And they did this by combining the third and sixth paragraphs of the Westminster Confession with the fourth article of the First London. And they specify five features that characterize our original sin. First of all, the origin of original sin in our life history at our conception, being now conceived in sin. So when we are conceived in our mother's womb, when we first come into existence at conception, we come into existence with a polluted heart and with a guilty record that has imputed to that record the guilt of Adam's first sin. So we come with a guilty record and a polluted heart. Behold, Psalm 51.5, I was formed in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then the culpability of original sin, by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, among whom we also once had our conversation in times past and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That we're culpable. Our inherited sinful nature and guilt from Adam's first sin is culpable. And we are brought into this world as children of wrath. Then they speak of the bondage or spiritual slavery of original sin, the servants or slaves of sin. This comes from the first London Confession and they support it from Romans 6, 20 to 22, which basically says that you were, don't you know that whose servants you are, whom you obey, whether sin or obedience. The consequence of sin, misery and death. The subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. And the Westminster Confession, from which this comes, provides support and cites biblical support for each aspect of this. Death, 
The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Spiritual misery. Ephesians 4.18 Having the understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Temporal misery. Romans 8.20 For the creature was made subject to vanity not willingly but by reason of him who subjected the same. And Lamentations 3.39 Wherefore does a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. And then eternal misery. They cite Matthew 25.41 Then will he say to them on the left hand Depart from me you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they cite Second Thessalonians 1.9 Who will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And finally they speak of emancipation from original sin and this phrase does not come from the Westminster Confession but this phrase about redemption in Christ unless the Lord Jesus set them free comes from the first London Confession which they add here. And they cite Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 about Jesus coming to save his spiritual children from the wrath to come. So they speak about the origin, the origin or beginning of our original sin at our conception. When our life begins in history, our sin begins with us. When we begin, our sin begins at our conception. The bondage of sin and its culpability, divine wrath and spiritual slavery. The consequences of sin, our original sin, misery and death. Death and misery, bondage, wrath, from the very beginning of our life in history, at our conception, from the moment we're conceived, we're conceived in sin, with a polluted heart and a guilty record. And then, in paragraph 4, they open up the issue of actual sin. Now, when it's called actual sin, it doesn't mean that original sin or representative sin aren't real sin, but actual refers to acts, A-C-T-S, or deeds, or personal choices. Personal choices, acts, and deeds of sin. And what they affirm is that all our personal sins, our acts and choices, our voluntary moral disobedience to God grows out of our sinful nature. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disables, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. That is, all acts, A-C-T-S, of sin. And they provide two aspects of biblical support. First of all, the sinful, corrupt nature. What's called total inability. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And Colossians 1.21, And you, 
that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. And then the fact that our sins, our sinful choices, our moral misdeeds, sins of omission and commission that we willfully commit, acts of sin, grow out of our sinful hearts. James 1.14 But every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And then lust, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And Matthew 15.19 For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witness, false witness, blasphemies. It all comes out of the heart. So we do the sinful things we do because our hearts are sinful. People in a state of sin commit acts of sin because they are sinful in their hearts. They have a sinful nature with which they enter the world. And out of that sinful nature, all actual, that is, acts of sin, sinful choices proceed. And then finally, remaining sin. Remaining sin. And this has to do with sin that remains in the heart of Christians. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And, although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So our remaining corruption is truly and properly sin, and remaining corruption is in every Christian throughout our entire life on earth. It is not possible for a Christian to achieve sinless perfection in this life. And if someone says he has or she has, that professing Christian is deluded. 1 John 1.8 they appeal to. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 they appeal to. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. They appeal to Romans 7.14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And verse 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. And verse 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And then in verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me to captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I've made my heart clean, I'm pure from my sin. And Ecclesiastes 7.20, There is not a just man on earth that does good and doesn't sin. And then they also mention the culpability of that sin. That the first risings of it are truly and properly sin. Verse 25 of Romans 7. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, 
I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And finally, Galatians 5 and verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. It is impossible for us to eradicate sin remaining in our hearts throughout this life. It's mortified by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's forgiven and pardoned. But it is never eradicated while we're here on earth. But thanks be to God, it will be eradicated either at death or at the second coming of Christ. And all sin will eventually be removed from the heart of every genuine believer. That's our hope. That our sin will not remain in us forever. But either at our death or at the second coming, our souls will be made morally perfect and incapable of ever sinning again. That's our hope. And blessed be God for that hope. All right, that's what I wanted to say about our confession of faith. It talks about the fall into sin. And then about representative sin, original sin, actual sin, and remaining sin. you have any questions or comments about anything that we've looked at this morning?